Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week, we're discussing the TOS episode, Is There in Truth No Beauty? I have this radical idea that this time, unlike the last two episodes, I'm going to summarize what happens in this episode before we start talking about those events. Yes, that's a good idea. Like a proper podcast. Oh my goodness, I know, we're so bad. It's just because we did it two episodes in a row and I was editing and I was going, we really need to plan this this thing. Like, why are you listening to our podcast if you haven't watched all of Star Trek? But know. you know what, this is the original series and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that our audience is not a lot of original series watchers. Certainly not the people whose primary part of the fandom is the original series. Yeah. Yeah. And while I know I'd seen this before and I also, I had opinions before I started watching, mm-hmm. but I only had the idea of it in my head. I didn't have the actual episode. Yeah, I had completely misremembered a bunch of things. All I remembered was that I loved Dr. Miranda Jones and that, spoilers, well, we'll get to that. We begin as the Enterprise is on an Uber mission to carry Ambassador Kolos, a Medusan, a member of a race so hideously ugly that looking at them will drive a person insane. We'll unpack that to his next job, accompanying the Ambassador, who is a special effect in a box, is Dr. Miranda Jones, a beautiful woman who, by the by, is also a psychologist and is preparing to join telepathically with the ambassador so that he can experience the life of a humanoid? It's not really explained, but this is a job she's fought for, that she's volunteered for, she's very up for it. She's also a telepath, a human telepath trained on Vulcan. And that makes her rather standoffish. But really the most important thing about her is that she is a woman. And she's very beautiful. A beautiful, a beautiful woman. A beautiful woman. Ugly women don't count. The final member of their party is Larry Marvick, an engineer. He's just a guy. Yeah, he's a guy. He helped design the Enterprise and now he's doing something or other with Ambassador Colossus' box. Oh, that sounds a bit... Anyway, he's there. We learned very quickly that the first choice for Colossus joining was Spock, and he turned the job down. So Miranda sort of has a chip on her shoulder because she's not the first choice. An awkward dinner party ensues. Miranda is hit on at every angle, and it ends with her saying, Someone in this room is thinking of murder. Knives out in the 20th, 23rd century. I would watch that. Uh, also, an awkward dinner party in space is like my favourite science fiction trope. So I was very into mm-hmm. that. That someone, that murderous someone, is Larry Marvick, of course, because everyone else at the table is a regular. His problem <laughs> is that he's in love with Miranda and thinks she should give up her career and remember she's a woman and marry him and have babies. When she refuses, he goes and attacks Kolos, but he looks upon the alien and is driven mad. He hijacks the Enterprise, flings it all the way across space into another galaxy, and then dies before Miranda can save him. So, problem. They're stranded on the other side of the galaxy uh, and have no way of getting home, and this is a pretty good setup for a Star Trek spin-off. In the meantime, however, Medusans have this tremendous navigation power. That's the word for it. I think Uh, they're one with space. They're one with space. Just like that Diane Duane novel where a talking dolphin uses cosmic Mm -hmm. strings to get the Enterprise between universes. Anyway, so Spock wants to join with Kolos and combine Kolos's understanding of space and time with his own technological skills to get the and ability to pilot and ability to pilot yes that's that's the main thing miranda sees this as a threat to her role with kolos and objects kirk's like i'll distract the doctor and he takes her to the arboretum and puts the moves on her and by the time she realizes what has happened it's too late spock has joined with the doctor shoot i forgot a really important point we don't do summaries. The other reason it can't be Miranda flying the ship home 
She's blonde. But that so, so Spock hasn't already joined. He, the awkward arboretum date ends in her realizing what's happening, oh, and yes. Kirk agrees. You know, points for Kirk. He's less horrible than the other guy. He agrees to bring her, and they interrupt it. But that's when McCoy shows up and is like, she can't do it because she's blind. Right, and we're 18 years away from a blind person being able to pilot a starship. So she goes in and consults oh, with Colossus. It's nice Colos. to be you, Miranda. I'm sorry, Miranda. The 23rd century is just too ableist. She goes in and consults with Colossus, and we find out that he agrees to be joined with Spock because she starts screaming like a very rational adult. Spock joins with Colossus. He flies the ship back where they left off, and then Spock catches a glimpse of the ambassador, and he too goes mad. It was insane. But his insanity is not murderous, it's just comatose. Then we have this very odd final act where Kirk accuses Miranda of sabotaging Spock and doing this deliberately. And this guilts her into helping him find his way back to sanity. I have questions about the psychology behind the actual yeah. real world. Anyway. And it ends with Miranda having joined with Kolos and everyone's happy and she's got her career. She's like one with Kolos now. Yeah, like, which is what she for, wanted. For reasons that are not explained. Not entirely. Yeah, she is now one with Kolos and that's what she wanted. And they were like going to wherever they were going together to do this anyway. So it all ends up basically status quo. Yeah. Except poor Larry is dead. Oh, well. Eh, he was an incel. He's a sexual predator, so, you know, whatever. And I guess Miranda is more comfortable in herself and happier. And she has endured an awkward trip with yeah. lots of men telling her that she's a very beautiful woman. I want to jump to the end, but the very final scene, we definitely have to discuss what even happens there. Because it does not make sense. Nothing that happens in the final scene makes sense with the rest of the episode. I mean, right down to the fact that Kirk doesn't bother wearing the protective goggles yeah. that enable a human to He's not to supposed see. to be in the room. I did research. Oh, gosh. I have notes on that. Notes? That's something I should have taken, obviously. <laughs> yeah, there was a summary. That's what happened. We did good. I was rehearsing uh, it in my head and then none of the right words came out. It's hard. It's hard to try to do it you know like you try to do it in under two minutes and yeah there's a lot a lot actually happens but like i said it ends up status quo so it's very weird it's a weird little episode yeah i think i liked it and it felt very much like a 60s short story but mm -hmm. i definitely find myself with many things to talk about I want to start with just why we decided to watch this episode, which is that there is going to be a Medusin in Prodigy, in Star Trek yes. Prodigy, the animated series, which is premiering kind of soon. I don't know exactly when, but I know it's soon. In any case, sometime later this year, Prodigy is coming out, and one of the main cast is a Medusin who exists in a robot. Yes! So that's exciting. It's exciting to me that finally, <laughs> however many years later, hundreds of years later, someone has decided to allow this species to not require boxes, telepathic, and... yeah. emotional human type people to interact. And I assume that the robot, because the robot has a voice actor, so the robot can talk. Yes. And that means the Medusin is going to be a fully-fledged character. Yes. Just in a robot body. I am also very keen to see how the 21st century deals with the so ugly they drive people insane concept. That was the, like, the theme of this episode. It was a m little muddled, I think. Yes. Because I think they were trying to say that there are different versions of beauty and ugliness. Yes. That Miranda, while being the most beautiful woman that ever existed in the universe, has, has this this horrible jealousy that is very, very ugly. 
and the medusin that is so hideous it it drives you insane <laughs> i can't even say it no with a straight face i'm so sorry but yeah, so the Medusans that are so ugly that they drive you insane have an appreciation of life and what makes relationships work, I guess. Mm. I don't know. The The Spock inhabited by Colossine was really cool. I liked that part of the episode. I think that was my favorite part when Spock was being Colos. Because he was still Spock, but he was also Kolos, and there was this really interesting dynamic going on. Yeah. And I think that we're supposed to understand that Kolos, while horribly ugly, is also a poet. Like, he's quoting poetry, and he's like this, you know, Byronic mm. hero or something. He just has a really great personality. <laughs> like, it's just really interesting. Like, he's this hideous person who's very charming and yeah. she is this beautiful person who is very standoffish and all of these men are in love with her and, and none of them are good enough for her and it's just it's bad but i think that that's ultimately the theme of the story mm. but but <laughs> first of all i don't know that's not how psychology works. Looking at something ugly is not going to cause a psychotic break or a mental illness. And the idea is kind of, in a modern context, ableist. And secondly, I follow Carly Findlay, who is an Australian disability rights activist and writer. And a lot of her work is in the field of facial diversity and uh, appearance diversity. And that's basically, you know, people who have disabilities or medical conditions you know something as simple as alopecia where you lose all your hair that mm -hmm. separates them from the so-called norm and the dis discrimination they face and the idea that someone is physically ugly and therefore can cause harm to others just by looking at them it's exactly the sort of thing she fights against but mm -hmm. like, it's a metaphor and it's sort of Lovecraftian in its construction of the Medusans. But I, I just, just sometimes I'm very literal and I have a really hard time when disability and metaphor collide like this. It's just really bad. Yeah. It's, yeah, you can take it on a meta level of, okay, what is the episode trying to say? And there's more to it than just... Disability bad. is bad. Mm. But not only are the Medusans literally trapped in a box mm. because people can't look at them, Miranda is unable to fulfill her goals because she happens to be blind. Yeah. And she hides it because she knows that people are going to treat her differently. Right. And that's super sad. Yes. And as a disabled character, I really like her. I love that she refuses to accept the ableism she faces if people realize that she's disabled. And like, sure, there are other ways to approach that and she could be a 23rd century disability rights activist and fighting that ableism. But what she wants to be is a psychologist and an ambassador for her people to Kolos. And just because you have a disability doesn't mean, shouldn't mean you have to be an activist. And so I respect right. this as a story of a woman just noping out of that dynamic. Yeah. But it's hard to, you know, going back to the promise of Star Trek, mm. it's hard to be like, so 300 years from now, she has to hide her disability in order to be respected. It's not <laughs> And she's still not respected because she's so pretty. Yeah, that's the other thing. Miranda shouldn't have to also be an activist for her disability because she's fighting just to be treated as a seemingly able-bodied person who deserves respect. Right. All of the mm. men, because all of the main characters in this are men, they're all attracted to every single man in the story is attracted to her mm -hmm. and treats her as a bauble. Yeah. And you're right. They don't even see her as a professional. Like, yes, she's a psychologist and she's something that got her at this gig you know like yeah 
there has to be a reason <laughs> that she was uh, able to study on Vulcan mm. and now she's in a position of some kind of professional power but none of the men on the Enterprise respect it including the person who's like her assistant no I, I will say I think Spock treats her with great respect but at the same time her own insecurities and her own expectation of mistreatment mm mean that she can't see it. relationship, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They could have been allies and they could have been friends, but she doesn't trust him. It's true. The dinner party scene where she assumes that Spock is wearing his idic pin to taunt her is really, really telling because it's ridiculous. It's completely self-absorbed and completely misunderstands who Spock is. Though granted, she's only met him an hour ago. But mm -hmm. she's been around Vulcans, so she should know that that's an illogical proposition. I can see Vulcans condescending to her. And being passive-aggressive through jewellery. Yeah. That sounds like a Vulcan thing to do. Yeah, you're right. So I can sort of see it from her perspective. Right. Because, yeah, she doesn't know Spock. And Spock, this is a great episode for Spock. Because you're right, Spock is the one person who respects her and who treats her as deserving of respect he respects her but he also treats her in this like trying to elevate her for everybody else too it's like why are all of you not doing this and then he has that scene that i mentioned at the end where we really get so much insight into spock when yeah. he's not being spock it's like really wonderful it's like a gift of a scene i assume that you as a spock uhura shipper appreciate that he takes <laughs> one look at uhura and starts quoting byron Yes. Like, not just Byron, but his most iconic love poem. Right. Like, it's huge. It's huge that he immediately says that, you know, Kirk is one of his best friends and that, oh, actually, McCoy is also one of his best friends. And then immediately goes over and, like, throws his heart out in front of Uhura. Mm. And then at the end, when Kolos has to leave his body... Mm. And he has this whole speech about the terrible loneliness of being human. I interpret it as if he had, if he was inhabiting someone else, he would not have that speech. But that's Bach's terrible loneliness that he so is showing to the world. And if, if we're to draw from that, that this is actually Kolos's first joining with a humanoid, Miranda seems equally lonely. And if she is sharing her consciousness with Kolos, does that mean she'll become less lonely? And will they together learn how to connect with others? I hope so. Me too. I only want the best for Miranda. Yeah, I really want the best for Miranda too. And I think that... I think that she is just so... Like, she has so many shields up, mm. which, again, it makes her so much like Spock. Like, of course they're rivals because they're very similar. Yes. Neither of them is going to be taken for an individual in this position. They're going to be taken as Vulcan-human hybrid and blind telepath. People are going to see their details before they see them. And I think that goes for Miranda's beauty as well. You know, you see a beautiful woman and you make certain assumptions like, oh, she's such a bitch. She's totally up herself. Mm -hmm. She's completely self-absorbed and petty and jealous. And I feel like these are all completely valid readings of the character, but they're completely uncharitable and unfair. It's super interesting. Miranda Jones is a really interesting character who has to do a lot in this one story. Oh, I was interested that they originally wanted to cast Jessica Walter for the role because Jessica Walter in the original Star Trek would have been amazing. But also she was an incredibly talented actress and then mm -hmm. they replaced her with Diana Muldor who is, I think, equally talented and I think a less brilliant actress would have really struggled to convey the complexities of this character. Definitely. People assume that beautiful actresses get their roles because they're pretty, mm. not because they're good at it. Right, and I feel like I just did that then when I suggested that they couldn't just cast any old beautiful lady. They, they had to go for this one in particular. Whereas I'm sure that Hollywood is and was absolutely crawling with women who are both beautiful and tremendously talented. Right. 
And it's just a weird double-edged sword because there's also the idea that you can't be cast in any movie or television series if you're not beautiful. You know, TV ugly mm. is prettier than regular pretty. It's just, it's really interesting. And Diana Mulder has a really interesting story in regards to Star Trek, because this was mm. actually her second appearance yes. on the original series. She was already in Return to Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. The Archons. It's another one where she was possessed yes. by another bodiless alien. So that's fun. I feel like they just knew that they could trust her to play two, like, that they know that she has that sort of range. Yeah, that she could do this. And it's like this idea that she was pretty enough. Mm. Because, of course, my first experience with Diana Muldar was as Dr. Pulaski and also the lawyer in L.A. Law. Yeah. They were, like, within a, a year of each other. And she was older. She had short hair, which she, I wasn't into. Like, no. all of me, I was a kid. I was yeah, a, yeah. A, a kid, and what was pretty to me was Beverly Crusher and not Catherine Pulaski. It's just, it's just the way it is. No, these days I look at Dr. Pulaski and I'm like, yeah, yeah. But back right. then I was like, who is this old lady? It, exactly. It was just, it, I was not at the right place for hmm. me. Like, now I'm approaching the age. And so it's like, oh, okay. But literally, I like Scotty, Spock, McCoy, Kirk, and the Larry guy all said that she was, like, the most beautiful woman that ever existed yeah. in so many words. Yeah. And then, like, they almost had to also tell her about her flaws like oh and also you are jealous and also you are blind and also mm. you are too focused on your career and like not romantic enough and you don't want the right things i know that it's the 60s and people are still struggling with this now in the 20s yes but the idea that she shouldn't go off with Kolos because eventually she will want to fall in love with someone as pretty as she is. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I was just like, I can't deal with this. This is just so bad. I hate this <laughs> gross concept of this lady is going to want to have an epic romance with a hot human mm. and settle down and have babies and forget all this, like yes. forget all of her ambitions. And I was sitting there like screaming at the television, maybe she's asexual. No, like, same. So mad. <laughs> <laughs> because she definitely shows no interest. No, in no. Or Larry. Despite their, or like, or any of the men. No, maybe she's gay, and what she really wishes is that Ahura had been at that dinner. Right. Okay, oh, and you know, on this, like, my notes mm -hmm. on the dinner are just yikes. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just big yikes no. for the entire dinner scene. But it starts, it starts with Miranda and... I think it's four men. She is literally the only woman in the room. No, no, because there's two red-skirted, oh. random, unknown, nameless women who serve them dinner and oh. then leave. And see, I didn't even spot those women. Guys. So it just started at a negative 10 and went down from there. I found... That whole scene, like I said, I love an awkward dinner party in space. Do not understand why Uhura wasn't there because in other episodes she would be in that scene. And I do feel like they were intentionally keeping other women away from Dr. Miranda Jones. First, because mm -hmm. if you have every man in the room talking about how she's the most beautiful woman who ever existed and then you put right. her next to Uhura, it's kind of like maybe there are <laughs> two most beautiful women who ever existed. <laughs> And also that would make them look like dicks and worse, ungentlemanly. But also, mm -hmm. Miranda never has an ally. 
the only person who is interested in being her ally is Spock, and she doesn't trust him. Mm-hmm. My heart breaks for her. But then the interesting thing about this episode is that the original script was written by a woman, and then the final revisions were done by a man, and specifically the man who wrote Turnabout Intruder, which is, as we've discussed just recently, one of the more misogynistic episodes in the whole franchise. I also found out that when she pitched the episode, the title was Miranda. And I just think it is so, like that, it's so, 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 I'm just going to go with sexist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To take a woman's story where she literally centers the woman. Yes. And decide that it needs a more poetic, you know, beautiful title that centers her beauty. Yes. (laughs) Instead of the woman. I think that's just just hugely problematic yeah and just says everything everything that needs to be said and the thing is you know i'm sure someone out there is going to say that miranda is a mary sue but this is the perfect episode that takes an original character and uses her first giving her a story in her own right but also using her as a vehicle to teach us more about the established characters and tell an interesting science fiction story and as you said we learn so much about Spock from that one scene so I think that the original author the original writer Jean Lissette Aroesti Aristi Arist I don't know I don't know I'm gonna but call it's cool her that Jean. she's a librarian yes That's what I, I find cool about her yes I feel like There's this tension in the episode between Miranda and everyone else and the sexism that Miranda faces versus the subtext that tells us that this sexism is right and proper. And I don't want to say Mm -hmm. that Jean was, by any standards, a right-on feminist. I don't know anything about her. But I feel like she was writing in 1969 a feminist story and I strongly suspect that it was then defanged by Arthur Singer. Mm-hmm. To make it more about the package of a woman as beautiful mm. and then these other things. A woman as a romantic interest yes, and then those other things. They elevated her beauty and her position as a love interest instead of a psychologist and a scientist yes. and an ambassador mm. and like a storyteller like she's Colos's voice right yes so yes she's so much more than a pretty face and they kept trying to say that was the sum of her worth no, and I wonder if in her original script that was what Jean Lissette Aroesti was talking about. You know, she is a librarian and she was an academic librarian, which is a fairly mm-hmm. masculine subset of a feminine field. And I wonder if she had a lot of pressure to, you know, give up her career and have babies and, oh, Jean, you're so beautiful. Sooner or later, you're going to give up on this silly career nonsense. And so I wonder if... Miranda's experience of being objectified and reduced was also Jean's. Yeah, I can imagine that. And I agree. I think that, like, this is no turnabout intruder. It's way better than that. I obviously haven't seen the original script or the many revisions, but I can imagine them. And it's just, like, this is a more, yes, you said complex. This is a complex story. It has a lot to say about beauty, about femininity, about presentation. Like, both the Spock stuff and the Miranda stuff are actually all about how you present yourself versus who you are to yourself. And that's super interesting to me. So... There's a lot of layers, and I I mean, I enjoyed watching it. I think it had a lot to say. I just... The, the dinner scene was super... Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. It's a good word for it. And then Kirk's seduction as distraction. That felt like something out of a parody. Yes. I think, as usual, I'm going to cite Darren Mooney, but he has talked about how in season three, Kirk was being positioned as a more traditional ladies' man 
than he had been in seasons one and two, and that was partially mm-hmm. because Gene Roddenberry had more or less moved on and the new producer didn't really understand the series or mm-hmm. the characters, and particularly Kirk. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's crazy to say it's similar to when they lowered the neckline onto Paul's costumes. Yeah. In that there was studio pressure to bring mm. up the ratings and having Kirk, like the reason that the second Star Trek pilot got through over the first Star Trek pilot is that William Shatner was in a fist fight at the end. Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of appeal to the lowest common denominator thing. The studio wanted a certain sort of cowboy type character. And again, like I don't want to go out here defending Captain Kirk because <laughs> I find the Arboretum scene really cringe-worthy in yeah. many ways. But he st- starts in for the kiss and she puts up a really big, yeah, no, I'm not yeah. interested in this. And he immediately backs down yeah. and she says, I know what you're doing. You're going off to Kolos and how could you bring me here to do that? And he's like, yeah, you're right. Okay. Mm. Like he admits it. He doesn't press it. He doesn't actually like follow through with the whole distraction. No, by, you know, no. seduction thing. He actually respects her enough to say, okay, we're going to go now. Yes. He doesn't respect her so much that he doesn't make the attempt. And I find that interesting. Like I said, he's a little better than the other guy. And mm. then at the end, the end is really interesting to me because it's definitely not Kirk reacting to Miranda. It's Kirk reacting to the fact that Spock's in a coma and, and Miranda is the only person who can help. It's like, I'm going to lose Spock and this is the person who can help. And the only way I know to get her to do it is by berating her and Mm. accusing her and being basically horrible. It's a really horrifying scene to watch and I hated it. It, Yeah, it's really bad. But the thing is that then he like comes out to McCoy and he's like, I shouldn't have done that. So there's this weird thing where Kirk is sort of self-aware that in both scenes he's Mm. doing something wrong but he doesn't stop himself. And I think it's accidental, but I think it's interesting. <laughs> and the other interesting thing is that like, we talk about Miranda making this irrational accusation against Spock, but then at the end, here's Kirk being equally irrational. And I'm going to use this word very deliberately, a bit hysterical. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Well, he's definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that Miranda is paralleled with both Spock and Kirk. Yes. And now that the MS word has gone through my head, I do kind of see how Miranda conforms to the Mary Sue type in a lot of ways, but I just think that she is such an interesting and complex character that no one reasonable could look at her and think, oh yeah, that's a two-dimensional self-insert or idealised character. No, I I mean, she absolutely has all of the hallmarks, but she's a quote-unquote real person. I can imagine her backstory and I can imagine what she does afterwards. I would almost like to meet up with Golos with and Miranda and see what happens with them. Yeah, and, yeah, same. And that's interesting. It's like I actually care. I actually care about both of those characters. I mean, Kolos is literally a light in a box. <laughs> I know. And yet, when he speaks through Spock, he's so interesting. He's so interesting. I feel like these are two disabled people entering a partnership to support and care for each other. Which is super great. I mean, that's a really interesting story. Yeah. The other thing, obviously, this is not the intent, but I think you could get a valid reading of Miranda as autistic or in some way neurodivergent. Yeah, I think that's fair. Not so much in anything that she does, it's... but the, the way she simply tries not to engage with humans and human emotion are really connected with it as a person who is a bit neurodivergent and you know she studied on Vulcan and I'm sure that was a real relief to her as someone who finds human emotions burdensome we haven't even talked about what it must be like to be a human telepath I just want to point out Mm. that it's interesting to me as someone who studies these things yes that both Elizabeth Daner and Miranda Jones Mm. are telepaths. Yes, and mental health professionals. Right. It's sort of like Star Trek or, you know, 
the original series has this idea that the only way to really understand mental health is if you and Deanne is an empath. It's like yeah. it even goes forward into so so it's like is Gene Roddenberry. Like I'm just gonna yeah. go out on a limb and say yeah. Gene Roddenberry's vision, quote unquote ew. <laughs> but is that only people who can for you know, by some twist of fate have more ability to understand someone's feelings yeah and belief systems are the only ones who can like actually be good at being mental health professionals which is interesting i was thinking about miranda in the context of your list of mental health professionals in star trek mm-hmm. because she definitely doesn't come across as a therapist she is strictly mm-hmm. a research psychologist but I'm into that. Right, because she keeps everybody at arm's length. That can be a good trait in a therapist. I just don't think she's interested. I think that anyone who is not a Medusan probably needs to work really, really hard to gain <laughs> her interest, let alone her trust. I think that's fair. And that's why she's so interesting, is because she doesn't like she doesn't want to be on the starship. Yeah, yeah. Again, that dinner scene, she's not responding. Yes. to the flirtation she's not encouraging it and she certainly doesn't encourage larry maverick no, no. you know she is practically a stone-faced medusa haha <laughs> she's definitely not sending signals yeah she's sending signals of stay the hell away from me larry that's what she's mm. that's the signal she's sending and he clearly has had a thing for her for a long time. Larry, to me, represents this, like, male entitlement idea that you're a beautiful woman mm. and I'm the person who spends the most time with you. Why haven't you fallen in love with me yet? Yes, yes. And <laughs> I, I found it interesting that we have this script where Jean is apparently positioning the male cast, the regulars, as not necessarily villains, but certainly unsympathetic in their treatment of Miranda. But then with Larry, because he's her own character, she can go, this is just a straight up not good dude. (laughs) I don't know people like that in real life, but I've heard of people like that in real life. I've certainly encountered it in its less overt modern form. Certainly a man who is rejected by a woman and then immediately turns to violence is a familiar figure in this mm-hmm. day and age. I, w- I wish Jean was alive and I wish that we knew more about her work and her intent with this episode because mm-hmm. I think her intent must have been really interesting. And in fact, yeah. her early drafts are available at the university library where she worked. It's just, you know, you have to apply and get access and I'm not going to Los Angeles anytime <laughs> soon. It is interesting. She only sold scripts to Star Trek. Yeah. She totally sold her Mary Sue to actual Star Trek and got her on actual screen. And that's uh, aspirational, I It guess. is. You know, she must have been one of the first people who did what would become normal with the Next Generation era of pitching a script as an outsider and having it accepted. Right. She's an inspiration to all of us. Can we talk about the the way human telepathy was sort of a thing on and off in the original series and has just vanished from the Star Trek universe altogether? When we were talking about how Elizabeth Daner was also a telepath, I was thinking about the 60s Mm. and like the concept of ESP. Yeah, it was sort of still a credible idea. Right. And it is not now. (laughs) I think we've (laughs) conclusively proved that human telepathy is not a thing. And I say that as someone who totally believes in, like, human psychic powers. But that's Mm -hmm. like my great-grandmother knowing when her son's leg was cut off in World War II, not Mm -hmm. literally sensing the future of the entire human race or whatever. Right. Like, Like, psychic mediums, not into it. People who talk with the dead or read your aura (laughs) not into it i think the telepathy thing kind of did fade out 
I feel like the last time anyone does take human telepathy seriously is Babylon 5, and don't get me wrong, I love the telepathy stuff in B5, I love the psychor. I mean, they're terrible, they're fascists, but I love them. Mm-hmm. But even watching for the first time, I was like, it's kind of weird how we're just treating this as a normal thing that humans do. Not to be that person. Mm-hmm. You could be that person. One of my, I'm going to say, favorite things to do is try to make things that I like, like Star mm-hmm. Trek or Star Wars or even Game of Thrones, like, make sense. Yes. When they do something that I don't like or that I disagree with or that I think doesn't fit into what I already believed in that yeah. universe. And so I can write off the idea of a telepathic human in the original series as uh, it's 300 years from now right and so there's the idea of evolution if someone was really trying or if we had eugenics which we do in Mm. the original series i mean it's not that that's good no no but but i can understand where it would come from like i could head candidate as a recessive gene caused by mutation in World War Three, and it's exactly. quite rare, but every now and then it pops up. Right. Because of exposure to radiation or yeah, exposure yeah. to, you know, fill in the blank. Yes. And it's just unusual and uncommon, but the Federation taboo against genetic manipulation means they're never going to be entirely rid of it. Problem solved. <laughs> That's one of those things that I really like about a super old fandom like Mm. Star Trek is that you can see the changes in our society and how it affects what happens Mm. in the quote-unquote future. And even the trends in science fiction writing at the time and the trends in television. And I feel like Star Trek and Doctor Who are probably the only works where you can track the changes in mm-hmm. science fiction and storytelling and television across decades. And Absolutely. that's great. I love yes. doing that. It's one of the things I most enjoy about watching classic Star Trek, even though that's not really my jam. And it's one of the yeah, reasons no, right. why. Like, I love classic Doctor Who, and this is one of the reasons why. Right. And that's why I'm much more interested in having these conversations about how things change instead mm. of having conversations about how we have to explain why it happens. Yes. Even though I just did that. But that was for me. That wasn't for canon. That wasn't yeah. for... I don't know. I I just think there's a difference between I can explain it to myself versus I have to put it in the script so that people don't yell at me on Twitter. Yeah, I certainly don't think we need an episode of Lower Decks even to tell us why there are human telepaths every now and then. I mean, Lower Decks could do it and it would be funny, but that's almost a parody of the, the fanish inclination to explain things. Yeah, there's a difference between headcanon and continuity yes and we everyone needs to let it go just continuity just is fluid yay that's everything is good yeah yeah i want to talk about the camera techniques on display (gasps) in this episode because it was not a normal original series episode they were definitely playing around and this is the part I did research on. Oh, oh, oh. We never talk about camera stuff. Go ahead. So the director, Ralph Sineski, yes. has a vlog, <gasps> which is great. He's alive? I, I don't know if he's alive because, you know, his vlog was started a, a recent-ish. The post that I read, I believe, was 2012. Mm. So... Okay, so twelve, he was alive. Good. And still telling stories. But I don't know. No. After that. Well, I hope but he's well. He has a blog where he talks about his memories of directing all the various things that he directed. He did a lot of Star Trek. Yes. Uh, and then he also did, like, Mission Impossible and Eight is Enough and the Partridge Family. Like, he was super active yeah. in this time period and then i'm just like this is so cool i i think i followed it from memory alpha yes i clicked on one of the the footnotes 
<laughs> and I ended up on his blog, and it was delightful. So we, we will put a link in the show notes to uh, Sineski.com and his post-production notes on Is There in Truth No Beauty? But he hated all of the post-production stuff that they did. He was not asked, and he did not understand why any of it was happening. Oh. And it was just... It was so fun to read this. Now, again, this boxing on the bridge, they did a lot of, like, showing us what Spock was seeing. And then in Sick Bay, they did it again when it was, like, basically a yeah. mind meld. Yeah, like a human-initiated uh, mind meld. A human-initiated mind meld. And they, at the end, like, he grabs her and does the actual mind-melding thing. So that was cool. That was the best part of the Sick Bay scene since the mm. Kirk stuff was awful. But... During that scene, they cut flashbacks to earlier in the episode yeah. and weird camera angles and you know, crazy things going on. I liked that stuff. Yeah, and same. by the time we got to that part in his blog, he was like, I'm just not going to talk about this anymore, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the beginning, like, okay, so I'll, I'm going to read the quote because I think it says a lot about what he is... Mm. staying and why he was against it so due to ensuing circumstances that occurred after i turned in my director's cut release this this tenaski cut release this tenaski <laughs> i did not view the final master print until the night the show aired <gasps> when i saw this scene i was appalled <gasps> who had ordered the horror film flickering green light and the comic strip animation that was inserted to represent the ugliness of the ambassador I had my suspicions, since that kind of vulgarizing technique had never intruded into Star Trek before. Oh, Fred Freiberger uh, strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> my objection was that its insertion negated the true intent of the scene, which was to show Spock's reverent reaction to meeting the ambassador, an esteemed person, not a monster. After Spock left, there was an even greater distortion. The script called for Miranda to look at the, in all caps, CLOSED receptacle, as she said. What is it he sees when he looks at you? I must know. The unscripted addition of a shot of the receptacle opening with a repeat of the animation was outrageous and tasteless. I love this! He was. I know. He was regarding Kolos as a pure person, as a real character with dignity. So good. And he's like, uh, and now it's just been turned into this horror movie nonsense instead of something beautiful and reverent. Okay, so then we get to the dinner scene. Oh my gosh. And you know, during the dinner scene where she has like one of you is thinking of murder. Yes. That scene. Yes. So this is his response to that. Further reason for me to be distressed. The superimposition of the ambassador's receptacle was, again, all caps, WRONG! Exclamation <laughs> point. Miranda was reading, by her telepathic ability, the thought of murder. Who in the group was thinking that thought? The ambassador had no seat at that table. <laughs> This is great. I interpreted that as someone, and I knew it was Larry because he's the only other guest star there, (laughs) is thinking of murdering Kolos. I didn't realise that it was intended to be more ambiguous. Which I guess is like the studio. The studio is like, this doesn't make sense. We have to add in what it's about. But that means that the studio assumes that, as you say, that it was Kolos. And Ralph here is like, no. (laughs) <laughs> that's not the point it's, it's the point that someone here is thinking of murder that's so fascinating and then the final scene yes i'm really excited to to talk about the final scene i'm so excited to hear about it did you catch the gross error the script and my director's cut had kirk say peace and then he exited who decided to have him hang around without a visor, which wouldn't have protected him anyway, because he was human? I have run out of scorn. 
I love this. It's so good. I love it so much. And I always want to say, I mm. caught it. You caught it. All of the comments on the blog mm. caught it. It was a huge error. You know, we've talked about how one of the things that makes science fiction work as a genre is that everyone involved in it, making it takes it seriously. And here is a director who's done many mainstream series, but he's taking this science fiction universe with the silly visor and the rules around it very seriously. And then you have Fred Freiberger, who by all accounts had no experience or interest in science fiction. And the changes that he made just don't make sense because he doesn't take it seriously. So yeah, yeah. I, I strongly recommend reading the whole thing because it's so good. And he has images of parts of the script and he has the clips included. And he showed the actor who played Larry mm. this episode, like however many years later, he's like an old man with white hair and stuff. <laughs> And he took pictures. And so there's like pictures of old Larry looking at young Larry and it, they're great. It's so fun. So Ralph Sineski, go, go see him. He gets Star Trek. I really do love this because it, <laughs> it sounds like everyone involved at a creative level, except maybe Turnabout Intruder Guy, really believed in what they were doing. And that's so wonderful. And... One of the things I like about this episode is that it's so self-consciously literary. You know, you have your Byron quotes, you have your poetry in the title, you have mm -hmm. your classical history with the Medusans. Miranda is a name from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Next Gen is all about the Shakespeare and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of intertextual references, Star Trek isn't like this anymore. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's talk about the costumes. Because there's some great costumes. The costumes so are great. many great costumes. I feel like Miranda just has the same outfit in different colours, but it's magnificent. It's like 1960s haute couture. Like, yes. It's, it's like... absolutely elegant and fun and just her. So she has this wrap shift dress. It's mm. like an overlay that she puts over all of her clothing that is bejeweled. Yes. And it's actually a sensor array that tells her where things are so that she can appear to not be blind. And I will say, speaking of, of Mr. Sineski, I yes. liked the choice to have Miranda stay seated during the dinner scene because she didn't know that everybody was standing. Oh, I didn't even catch that. I thought that was a choice made to highlight her vulnerability as the only woman in the room. But as a minor detail, foreshadowing her disability, I love that. I'd seen this before and I knew who Miranda was, so I knew that she was blind mm. when I watched it this time. So maybe I like interpreted it that way, but that's how I interpreted it. That, I think it's totally that it was valid. broadcasting that she couldn't see what was happening in the room. Mm, yeah, no, I absolutely buy that. It can also be both. You know, we can send several messages at the same yeah. time. <laughs> so I love her entire look. My friend Sue, who is one of the hosts of Women at Warp, mm. has cosplayed as Miranda oh. in a really, like, impeccable, perfect <laughs> representation. And... It's just such a good look. It's so good. I just love it. I know that having her sensor web look like a, a piece of fashion is for the surprise reveal, but I love <laughs> that we have a, adaptive technology that is also very beautiful. Yes. You know? We live in an age where people are blinging up their wheelchairs and decorating their crutches and their walking sticks, and I am totally here for the sparkly sensor net cape uh, also in early discovery when all we knew about Lorca was that he was a troubled guy with eye problems i was like maybe if he doesn't want to have his eyes replaced he can get like a cool sparkly cape <laughs> a cool sparkly cape i mean even just something as simple as eyeglasses which yeah. is one of those things that in the ableism conversation is always brought up as like look 
everybody who is nearsighted or farsighted and has to use glasses yeah. for some reason is actually disabled but we as society have chosen to fix that and make it very easy for them to get around we've normalized it yeah we don't even think of it as assistive technology or a disability right. but 100 percent, you can spend hundreds of dollars to get designer eyeglasses yes and so absolutely why would the sensor cape be any different and also, unlike Geordie's visor, it doesn't cause her pain. I know there's at least okay. one tie-in novel where Geordie recalls wearing a cape like that as a child before he got his visor and preferring the visor because even though it's painful, it gives him a better level of sight. But I like that people have the choice. So speaking of Geordie, yeah. I do like that Geordie is sort of a callback to this episode in that he was the pilot. Hmm. He became chief engineer, you know, first episode of the second season so you almost forget that he was the pilot i remember i've seen conversations about how this new star trek is so politically correct that they have a blind man piloting the ship why do we always have the same argument over and over again because new people come into fandom they're idiots they learn they get better then more new people come in that's the charitable reading okay but i like that she is not allowed to be a pilot but Jordy is pilot of the Federation flagship X many years later. I just, I like that. I like that Star Trek is saying, we're sorry. We're sorry to have said that she wasn't allowed to pilot. The way piloting works in Star Trek, there is no reason a blind person cannot <laughs> learn There's no reason. What do they have to see? <laughs> like, the, the view screen doesn't show what you need in order to pilot. No, no, like, it's purely it by instrument. Doesn't. So that was... So. Honestly, a bit of lazy ableism from the 60s. And like you, I'm really glad that they rectified it. I like the sign that assistive technology advances and people mm -hmm. get more opportunities. And it's harder with a disability, but it's not impossible. Right. So then there's Scotty. And his dress uniform, which is a full-on kilt. Yes, because he's Scottish. Which is great. He also introduces himself and he's like, Montgomery Scott, chief engineer, call me Scotty. And it's just like, I'd really? Wanna... Really? Really? Okay. okay, okay, Scotty. But for the Amanda Fashion Project, I watched Journey of Favel again, mm -hmm. and the dress uniforms get an upgrade from Journey of Babel to this. Oh, that's nice. They're the same, like, design, but because now everything is in HD, mm. I can really see the difference. Like, we decided to make these, you know, this random gold brocade better this time, you know? We sewed it on instead of gluing it on. It just looks crisper. Everything looks better. They all are shinier in some way. That's really interesting, and it's kind of a shame that the series is cancelled before we really got a lot of use out of those new uniforms. The whole Scotty, it's a little United Colors of Benetton that there's yeah. Scotty and there's Chekhov and there's Sulu, and there's like, we have, it's diversity in a very specific way, I yeah. guess. Yeah, it's, it's tokenistic, the best way to put it. but it was progressive for the time. But I do like that he is full on and proud and, you know. It's about time the Scots felt free to celebrate their identity. <laughs> but then there's Spock's edict. Yes! As a pin and then also as a necklace. Because he is all about that bling. But my favourite bit of research from this episode <laughs> was the reason that infinite diversity and infinite combinations was introduced. It's more like infinite cash in Gene Roddenberry's pocket. Yes. <laughs> you, you tell this one. Okay, so Roddenberry, as we've discussed, has sort of stepped away from Star Trek, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like he started a QBC channel. Basically. <laughs> because he, he started a shop Lincoln Enterprises. I don't think he started he, it. I think it was started by a fan it and was, he... And he took it over? Yeah. He realized 
is that there was an audience and he purchased it. Yeah, there's some sort of conflict around it. I, I can believe that. Yeah. So he decided that that was the best way to make money. And, you know, I uh, guess that's all of America is now based on this idea. So I guess it was uh, forward thinking. He was ahead of his time in so many ways. So he designed this Vulcan pendant. But the entire purpose of it was to sell, you know, for $50 a pop jewelry to yeah. Star Trek fans. That was the whole point. And so the great part is that <laughs> Leonard Nimoy was like, oh, hell no. Oh, no, you I don't. Yeah. I refuse to do this. I am not going to be a party to your product placement in Star Trek. So this was the first scene that was going to be filmed. And so the director showed up and uh, this is another quote from his blog. Our first day of filming, Tuesday, July 16th, arrived, and I was greeted with a mutiny on the Enterprise. And uh, so Nimoy called Fred, and mm. he ignored him. And so then he called Gene and said, you know, look, come down here and rewrite this scene or else I'm, I'm out. Yep, yep. No more Spock for you. William Shatner backed him up and when those two are agreeing on something at this point in the series so that scene was not filmed on the first day because gene roddenberry did rewrite it to make it less of a Mm. advertisement for spock's jewelry although he does wear two different versions in the episode so it's still a product placement but like the best part of this story i know other than leonard nimoy having a sign is all of the obnoxious boomer fans who yell at all of us who enjoy Discovery and say that Discovery only exists to make Paramount money. Gene loved money! (laughs) And that it goes against Gene Roddenberry's vision. There is a reason Gene invented the Ferengi. (laughs) The other great thing is that this was actually the second attempt at getting the Idic medallion and pin into... (laughs) the series the first attempt was spock's brain and again the cast mutinied i am so proud of the cast for understanding that they were in this anti-capitalist i don't series that wasn't about that like they understood star trek there's something that really sits wrong with me about the money for this merch going to Roddenberry as an individual and not the right. production company and not in any way supporting the production of the series. And especially if he bought it out from yeah. a fan. Yeah. Like, that's like someone going to an Etsy shop and... Which is something that's happening now, in point we, of fact. We don't like it when this happens. We don't like it when fan works are exploited by the creators. And I don't know, maybe if there had been a viable pipeline of merch money for NBC, they wouldn't have been so quick to cancel at the end of the season. And obviously we would not have Discovery today if Star Trek had not been prematurely ended. But there's just a level of selfishness from Roddenberry that I think is really telling. It's like when he created lyrics to the theme that were never used just so you could get a piece of of the royalties for that. He had many great ideas, but he was very much a capitalist which is why when people get so up and yeah. it's like no, no oh i just think it's wrong oh. that i should have to pay oh. to watch star Not trek mate i used to pay 12 dollars <laughs> a month for to rent new release videos and that was the only way so it's just ridiculous <laughs> to be complaining about it like it's just so weird to me and then there's so much merchandise. Honestly, I wish there was better merchandise. I have a bunch of action figures, but they're in my closet because they are meant to be when we do a live recording <laughs> at, oh, at a I convention love your and we give them away. It's like, no joke. That's why I bought them. I found someone who had a like a whole box full of old Star Trek figures, and so I got like all of my favorite guys. But I haven't opened them. I've just kept them in my closet because that is my goal. My goal is for them to be giveaways at 
a live show. I am fully vaccinated. As of yesterday, <laughs> it is just a matter of time until I can leave the country and also separately have the money I, to leave the country. No, I definitely don't have the money to come to Australia. <laughs> no, no one does. We're not letting anyone in. I'm going to do the outro. Thank you for listening to Andy Matterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. You can also follow us on Twitter at antimatterpod, all one word, and on Facebook. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. Also, I logged into my American iTunes account the other day and saw we have one one-star rating. Everyone else is five stars. Oh, I know. I'm outraged. How dare. In the Australian store, we have mostly five stars and one four star. And I'm like, yeah, that's valid. That one star, though, it haunts me. <laughs> so rate us. And join us in two weeks when we'll be discussing relationships and shipping in the next generation. <laughs> <laughs>